This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you. It's great to have your company as we head out and explore a big country. This week, we're following the floodwater. After big rains in northern Australia, water's made its way down to South Australia's Riverland, where it's filling up wetlands and floodplains and bringing frogs and birds out to play. We'll learn about how feral donkeys are being retrained to work as guardian animals, and we'll meet the women who are taking the helm of harvesters, haulers and cane trains during this year's sugarcane harvest. They're helping to fill a labour shortage and finding some real perks to the job the scenery like it's so beautiful driving around different farms in Mossman and Daintree and sometimes it's like a wildlife documentary happening in front of you we see like snakes and wild pigs and so many bandicoots and dingoes and kangaroos crocodiles even (laughs) so I love that aspect and it's just a new challenge but it's really fun Work with a wildlife doco on the side. It sounds like a pretty good gig and we'll have more on that story coming up. First today, we're heading to the Northern Territory where a program introducing high school students to the work of remote rangers is marking a decade and celebrating the success of its graduates. Growing up in Meningrida, a small Indigenous community on the Northern Territory's remote Arnhem Land coastline, Jonah Ryan dreamed of becoming a ranger. You know, I thought about ranger for every year, like since when I was two years old when I went camping with my old man. And like after that camp, I would just think about that day, like camp. It was so fun doing bushwalking with rangers and doing ranger work. Jonah's dad worked as a ranger. And so from a young age, he was able to spend time on country with him. I wanted to be just like my dad. So when this program came on, you know, I said to myself, just go for it, you know. Don't think about it, don't keep saying it, just do it. G'day, I'm Max Rowley. The program Jonah is talking about is called Learning on Country, funded by the National Indigenous Australian Agency and run by the NT's Northern Land Council. And he has it to thank for realising his dream of becoming a Barwanunga Jelk Ranger. The Learning on Country program is a joint initiative between Aboriginal ranger groups and remote Indigenous schools and uses what's known as both ways learning. The program recently marked its 10th anniversary with the celebration and gathering at Nitmaluk National Park on the lands of the Jawan people just outside the NT town of Catherine. It's where I caught up with Jennifer Yantana, a traditional owner from Groot Island. Learning on country program is a better way for us to, to teach the kids about two ways culture, the indigenous way and the Balanda way. She spent years as a ranger and now sits in the steering committee for the Learning on Country program. It is really important for us as uh, elders to bring back what was left. So we have to teach it and renew everything again because Learning on Country is the most important program for the kids so they can pass it on to their kids and their kids and to the future generation. And what kinds of things are the rangers doing with the students? They're teaching them how to look after the country, especially the marine debris, collecting, cleaning the beaches, rescuing the turtles. Learning about culture as well, I'm sure? Yes, learning about culture. That is the most important thing for kids to learn about culture. The dancing, the singing, the stories are all there, but they need to 
make it alive again. In terms of the program practiced today, it can be traced back to a school in Arnhem Land in the early 2000s and a chance encounter there. When I graduated from university, I uh, did the first six months relief teaching pretty much around the traps. That's Mason Shoals. I got a week's gig out at Manangarita. Not knowing much about the community, I flew in during the night on a little plane, dropped off with the principal and just put into a house and I had no idea where I was or what I was doing. Yeah, I was thinking like when his first day, he came in through the classroom and I didn't know. We just right there and, you know, got shocked. That's Joseph Ditto, a local traditional owner who's also a Jabana language and culture teacher at Manningrader College. I was lucky enough to have Ditto working with me. We just had a great relationship and we grew a lot together and senior secondary education started in remote communities in 2003 and uh, they, I suppose, tasked us with being able to deliver a science curriculum for senior secondary. We had our thinking caps on. We decided to go with a subject called contemporary issues and science. And, you know, having a background with rangers and having Ditto beside me, we decided to uh, link up with the Jelk Rangers. Yeah, that project, we're helping together with senior Jelk Rangers and junior rangers. Because we didn't have a science classroom, there was nothing available for us to be able to teach science in, in a traditional sense. So we went to the community strengths, and that was two-way learning, Indigenous knowledge, and the work that rangers are doing, blending those two knowledge systems together. And it really worked, and had a lot of success in the community. It did take a few years to get the wheels really turning and get, get the rangers on board, but you know um, we had some fa- fantastic people over at the rangers that really wanted to engage, or the rangers wanted to engage with the kids. I suppose the difficulty became, became so successful, it was becoming difficult to manage with the complexities of liaisoning between the rangers, all the tasks, you know, trying to get the curriculum, all the subject matter to, I suppose, correlate with what we needed to bring back into the classroom. And so we ran with that for about six years. Students doing a lot of great work, a lot of incredible experiences. From there, it developed into an Indigenous ranger cadetship and eventually the Learning on Country program initially at four schools, but growing over the years to include more than 15 communities right across Arnhem Land and as far south as Borroloola. Jonah Ryan is one of many graduates of the program. It led him to his dream job as a ranger, and now he gets great satisfaction seeing the next generation learning on country. I'm really grateful to be here and seeing the young ones becoming the young, like just like I'm looking at my younger me standing and talking and being a next leader, and I'm like, like this is what I needed. You know, I needed someone to be up in my level, and now I'm seeing like lots of young young men, young women wanting to be a ranger, looking after their country, and you know that's really good to hear. They want to look after their country, yeah. And I always tell them, like what I tell myself, you know, just don't give up. You started that, you just continue on, and you will find yourself with a green shirt. Yeah, and looking after your country and you know, keeping you, your song line strong and your culture strong and working on your country. That's the most beautiful thing about Ranger. You know, you're working on your country. You're not working in your community. You're working on your country. You're doing it for your country. You're doing it for your people. Yeah, and you're doing it for the next generation. So at the moment you can hear some frog species. So the Murray Valley froglet is that eek, that high-pitched sound that you can hear. So they're loving it at the moment. Um, And the swatted marsh frog is that staccato lower sound that you can hear. So 
two of those frog species have started calling already, which is exciting. These happy and noisy frogs are enjoying the extra water that has flowed onto the floodplain here at Chowler Game Reserve in South Australia's Riverland region in recent weeks. And they are not the only ones. Ecologist Grace Hodder from the State Department for Environment and Water says a number of bird species are also being drawn to the floodplains in wetter conditions. At the moment we've already got some of our duck species coming in, things like grey teal, chestnut teal. We'll probably start getting some more migratory ducks in large numbers. So um, species like the pink-eared duck come in the hundreds and their thousands to use these waters more into the spring season. But then there's a whole suite of terrestrial birds as well. So there are honey eaters that will start feeding on the nectar produced by the black box trees and the river red gums. There are nomadic species, so species that come from lakes inland such as stilts and other types of waders. And, and then migratory waders that come from overseas, so things like redneck stint, sharp-tailed sandpipers, they actually fly from across the other side of the world to use some of these wetlands at Chowler. Hello, I'm Anita Ward. I'm chatting to Grace Hodder near the Coppermine Waterhole on the Chowler floodplain north of Renmark in South Australia's Riverland. She says it's a real buzz seeing the wetlands come to life as floodwaters from the north of Australia move down the Murray River system into South Australia. Oh, it's so exciting. It's, it's really chalk and cheese from what it looks like in drier times. So um, when I first started in this job, things looked pretty brown and pretty dry on Chowler and we've had uh, two decent years with water and particularly this year with the high flows. So everything is, is green and coming to life and it, it's, yeah, it's really exciting when things start calling and flowering and all the action starts happening. Just south of Chowler, Peter Kale is manager and principal ecologist at Calprum Station for the Australian Landscape Trust. So this is the edge of Woolpool uh, Lake, which is one of two of the large lakes that are on Calprum floodplain. Calprum floodplain is part of the Riverland Ramsar site, which is an internationally significant wetland. We're seeing particularly high flows at the moment. We can literally see the water right behind you. Where has this water come from? So this is the high flows that have come out of the flooding and so forth in Queensland and New South Wales. And this is human-induced high flows down at this end of the, the system where the managers of the river are, are releasing water to uh, ensure that they've got enough capacity in their dams for any other high flows that might be coming through in the future. What does it mean for Lake Woolpalool and, and the environment around it to have this water here at the moment? So there's some goods and bads about that process. This particular lake uh, was going through a wetting and drying cycle before these high flows came. We were getting some really good aquatic uh, responses out of that process. Now with the high flows that have actually overbanked the, the, the top of the regulator, it's unregulated water going in there and unfortunately that also takes with it things like carp and they are causing some damage to this particular lake at the moment but it's also watering these trees that you can see those trees need these high flows to get the water they need to, to persist in the long term they live 400 years so they need that occasional drink every once in a while how old are some of these black boxes these black boxes would go back at least a couple of hundred years. Obviously it's hard to tell exactly, but this system changed through the sort of 20s through to the 60s. Um, and a lot of trees in this system died because uh, there was a lot less water coming into these lake systems. Most of the trees here are mature trees and so they would be at least a couple of hundred years old. So to have this water now, what does it mean for the trees for, the, for their future? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's vital for them to get this sort of watering and they will definitely uh, 
be able to handle the next 10 years of whatever comes in terms of available water from the system of wetlands. Indigenous park ranger Jeremy Sumner has noticed more native animals returning to the area around Lake Woolpalool on Calprum Station. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of emus um, in particular around this year. Like You're just seeing them everywhere at the moment and it's just yeah, such a good feeling. Even the birds, like I went out on the other side of this lake last week and I could hear about eight different calls from different birds. So that was a good day out, I suppose. <laughs> Indigenous park ranger Jeremy Sumner, he spoke to reporter Anita Ward in South Australia's Riverland, where high flows are filling up wetlands and bringing native wildlife to the region's watering holes. Before that, reporter Max Rowley found out about the Learning on Country program that's been running in Northern Territory communities for 10 years. You can see more on both of those stories by heading to the RN homepage, where you'll find a big country under the programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, the feral donkeys getting a new lease on life, working to keep farm animals safe from predators. And we'll head to the cane harvest in far north Queensland, where new recruits are getting comfortable in the driver's seat of some heavy machinery. Hi, my name's Elsa, I'm 27 years of age and I'm here in Mossman driving power hauls for the sugarcane harvest. Our power haul is essentially a big tractor, um, we've got a 10 tonne bin on the back which uh, is designed to collect and carry cane. Our job as power haul drivers, we collect the cane from the harvester and then we fill up our bin, take it to the bin stands uh, and dump it in there for the mill to come and collect. We also spend time maintaining the tractors and equipment. I have worked on farms a few times before, but never driving heavy machinery, so this is uh, quite a new skill for me. My previous job was actually working on a prawn trawler as a cook, so quite a contrast to what I'm doing today. From cooking on a prawn trawler to driving a power haul on a sugarcane farm in far north Queensland, Elsa Tickler is picking up new skills and keeping her career options well and truly open. I think learning to drive heavy machinery is a great skill set to learn um, and it's something that will be so valuable in my life in the future, I guess. Yeah, I think I'll be back for next season. I don't see any reason why women can't do this job as well as men can do it. G'day, I'm Tanya Murphy. I'm here during harvest time on this cane farm at Mossman where Elsa Tickler is one of two young women taking on this tricky role. It requires skill, coordination and concentration to manoeuvre the 10-tonne tractor over rough terrain and tip sugarcane into a train carriage without spilling it. Elsa, along with Jasmine Cartwright, were the first women to ever apply for this job here on Matt Watson's farm. And they're proving they're well and truly up to the task. Hi, I'm Jasmine. I've never driven heavy vehicles before starting this job and prior to this year never really imagined that I would go down this path for work, but I'm really happy I did. I was actually so shocked, like in our first week, our boss like told us that he'd never had any women haulers, like we just assumed that there would be like, definitely like women can do the job just as well as men. It takes a bit of time to like practice and get used to the trucks because they're just unique in the way that they run, but absolutely women should give it a go. What do you enjoy most about this job? The environment we're working in, like the scenery, like it's so beautiful driving around different farms in Mossman and Daintree and sometimes it's like a wildlife documentary happening in front of you. We see like snakes and wild pigs and so many bandicoots and dingoes and kangaroos, crocodiles even. 
So I love that aspect and just it's really challenging because um, the roads are like obviously a bit off-road and you're driving like a really heavy vehicle. So it's just a new challenge, but it's really fun, actually. A new skill set, super fun. And I'm pretty happy in far north Queensland for now. With the cane tipped successfully into train carriages, another young woman takes on the job of getting the cane delivered safely to the Mossman sugar mill. Hi, my name's Sophie. I'm 22 years old and I moved here four and a half years ago from Adelaide. This will be my fourth year now at the Mossman Sugar Mill and yeah, this year I'll be training to be a driver. I was a makeup artist when I worked in Adelaide so it was a little bit of a field change. I think it's something I love doing a whole lot more, you know. I feel like it's meaningful. How long does it take to train to become a loco driver and when will you be fully fledged? So you need 200 hours to get your ticket and then you get a test at the end. So yeah, Julian's training me this year. I was with him as a driver assistant last year as well. So yeah, slowly building the hours up and writing them all down in my logbook. What do you enjoy most about this job? I honestly think the scenery is amazing. Like you see really nice parts of Mossman and we go all the way up to Winebill, all the way to Mowbray towards Port Douglas. We have to cross a few bridges on the way and there's stunning creeks and I also love the people I work with. Like they, we have a great crew here and it's all around a really good place to work. As a loco driver, are you also sort of a train mechanic? Well, when we do have maintenance days or when uh, there's days that the mill needs to stop for whatever reason, we do help out John, who is our mechanic here, uh, greasing the locos. We have to change the grease bombs. We have to make sure all the oils and the final drives and everything's uh, topped up and working well. We also have maintenance days where we have to adjust the brakes and put new ones in as well. So, yeah, we do have to learn a little bit about that. I understand you're not the only female loco driver, but there's not that many around, is there? No, actually, when I did start, yeah, I was one of the only females working on the trains. But now, as the years have gone past, there's more and more women who are actually coming in and learning to drive and learning to be driver assistants as well, which is really good to, to see. I've actually heard a few people say, women are a little bit more careful on the trains. <laughs> yeah, they pay attention and um, they're very careful. What are your future plans? Do you see yourself having a long-term career in this field? Yeah, I do. I, I, I actually love working here, especially it's, it's seasonal as well. So it's only five, six months of the year. Um, now that I'm getting my driver's ticket, I do see myself wanting to stay on and continue driving. And wherever it leads me, maybe I could one day have a permanent job here in the off-season. I've just fallen in love with this place. So it's something that I can see myself doing in the, in the future. Do you have any advice for other young women? I just think go for it, you know, you can train to be anything that you want to be if you put your mind to it and it's a really open industry. I think if you want to do it then just go for it because I've learnt so much this year and anyone can do it really. In the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, sheep farmers have found an unlikely saviour. While donkeys may have a reputation for being stubborn and difficult, farmers are finding they make great guardians for their livestock. But elsewhere in Australia, donkeys are considered pests. 
out on stations, the donkeys really are classified as feral because they're taking up prime livestock feed. So for farmers, they're of no value to them. And to muster them, they're, they're pretty interesting. So a lot of costs there in mustering, but they've got to find some way of eradicating them. That's Brooke Purvis. She is the founder of the Last Stop Donkey Program that rehomes feral donkeys and puts them to use as guardian animals. She understands why donkeys are considered pests in places like central Queensland and the Northern Territory, but she believes they're too useful to cull. So through lambing and calving, they're really, really worth their weight in gold due to the fact that when something comes into their paddock, they're quite territorial. They actually go towards the danger instead of running away. So if a dog does come in to attack, a donkey just stomps it or it does run it off. The biggest thing with farming around here, there was a lot of sheep farming going back a generation or so and a lot of people went out of that due to stock losses. And now they're trying to get people to bring sheep back into this country because it is good sheep country up here. And they've got a lot more confidence in seeing the success of other farmers that have taken on a donkey, just part of a pilot and a test program to see how effective it would be. And it has just been gangbusters. Like it, it has been a really good result of the donkeys. G'day, I'm Amelia Bernasconi, and Brooke's appreciation for donkeys led to the birth of this innovative program that's seeing the once feral donkeys being handled and trained up to protect farm livestock. Someone who has benefited from the program is Diane Parnell, who has a small sheep flock at her property near Maitland. Like so many farmers in this area, she'd long battled with wild dogs attacking her flock and the uncertainty that each morning would bring. Lost 25 in one night. They just ran them down, killed them, didn't eat them, uh, didn't tear them to bits or anything. So it was just a sport for them. I haven't had a donkey before, <laughs> so it's a new experience. But she's just so gentle with them, you know. She herds them in. She'll just round them up and bring them in and they just follow her like she's their mum. I go out at night. If I hear anything outside, I'll go out, out at night with the torch. And, yeah. But I'm more relieved because I've been out here at night when there's a fox around and she's got them all herded together watching them. Now, Diane's donkey is quiet. Even with a foal at foot, she's calm, she's stress-free, even around people. But that took hours and hours and a whole lot of patience. And luckily, the Last Stop Donkey program isn't a one-woman show. Brooke Purvis knew she'd need a good team to give these donkeys a new purpose in life, in a much longer life than they'd perhaps otherwise would have had. It was a little nudge of her ag teacher friend at a cattle parader's competition one day, and the St Catherine's Catholic College soon became the Last Stop Donkey program's launching pad. Joanna Towers took on the task, initially with her Year 9 class. It came after COVID because in lockdown, the agriculture students did a lot of theory, a lot of learning at home. And when we came back to school, the guidelines were still very much about, you know, maybe lots of ventilation being outdoors. And I thought, what can I do? I need a project. So Brooke is a friend of mine and she had the idea about the donkeys. And I thought, perfect, you know, we can work with these donkeys and they can break them in and um, learn on the job, so to speak. So it was certainly something new for those students and one of those who lives right next door to the school ag farm, Jacob Merrick, was uh, quite the standout from the get-go. He now works alongside Brooke as the Last Stop Donkey program continues outside the classroom. I'm quite impressed, quite 
proud, I guess, of like what we've achieved. Like you can imagine, like donkeys are just feral as like they've come from the Northern Territory or Queensland or wherever. They've come down on a truck, a couple of days. So when they come here, like I said, they were just feral and they just throw themselves over and do everything they would you'd expect to do because they just they've never seen humans before, never had halters on them, let alone you know us being able to touch them. But now you can just earlier in the paddock, you just go up to them with licorice or no licorice, you just walk up and you can pat them, you can do all contact out there, and now you can come into the yards and just call their name and they'll just come to you or go what. Oh, that's my name. Yep. Thing, you know, they're just like both animals once you get used to them. Once the donkeys are broken in, the journey certainly doesn't end there. The program is committed to the donkeys' welfare as well as that of the farmers and their stock. Their biggest worry is, oh, I'm not going to know what to do with the donkey. How do I look after it? So giving them the confidence that, you know, we can give them those tools to then implement back at their farm. Because I guess, you know, the donkeys' welfare has to be taken into account because we do hear quite a lot of stories where the farmers just turn them out in the paddock with their sheep and feet, teeth, all of that's ignored. So a part of us is really wanting to, you know, give the farmer those tools and they can come here. We've started a program where farmers are coming in and they're doing a day with us working with the donkeys just so they get to understand that particular animal and, and how to get the best out of them. Brooke Purvis, who founded Last Stop Donkey Program. She spoke with our reporter Amelia Berlusconi about work they're doing to train feral donkeys to work on sheep farms in the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales. You can read more on that story on the RN website. Go to abc.net.au slash rn and look for Big Country under the Programs tab. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.